This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Our passage this morning reminds us of something that's old and ever new, the fact that Jesus breeds opposition, but that the opposition that Jesus breeds takes a number of different forms. You can see it in the gospel stories, whether it's his birth that we celebrate, the infancy narratives that we recount, uh, we see that there is light and there is glory and goodness, but there are also dark tinges aren't there? I, I'm a parent of small children like many of you, and I have found that the Christmas season prompts a lot of life knowledge that you might not have otherwise gotten to. I don't know how many of you have found that uh, teaching things like sex ed has been prompted by discussion of the Virgin Mary and telling your children uh, the infancy narratives of Jesus Uh, There are certain tidbits that draw forth more knowledge and awareness than perhaps our young ones take for granted. And there are other bits that we oftentimes push to the edges, aren't there? King Herod wiping out children, uh, seeking to do away with all the babies so that opposition, a threat to his power, would not arise and uh, survive We oftentimes overlook that, but right there at the very beginning of Jesus' story, you have not just a star coming, not just people bowing the knee and praising the Lord, but you've got an infanticide. You've got this sustained, systemic effort to wipe out others, to oppose what God is doing, to do away with the promise of God. And it's not just at the beginning, of course. Jesus survives, and we have this remarkable story of him being taken down into Egypt and being sustained by God's provision, who's prompted his father to to lead him away to safety for a time. But throughout his life, of course, he's, he's the man of sorrows, isn't he? Just as much as the masses come to him and receive him and delight in what he does for them, we see time and again that there are others who want to do him in. Oftentimes, religious authorities, we're told, want to kill him. 
And of course, by the end of the story, the entire crowd seems to be screaming, crucify him, crucify him, and willingly swapping out a known murderer and traitor for this, the incarnate Lord. There's overt opposition, and we know that, and we can see that in the biblical stories. But there's also subtle opposition from even those who are in his innermost circle. We see it in the stories of his disciples and their families. You remember the request of the mother of two of his closest disciples when she comes, and on behalf of the two sons of Zebedee, she says, Lord, can they sit at your left and and your right hand? And she's probably voicing what a lot of people are thinking, that Jesus is here to sort of advance us, to bring us up, to exalt us into positions of renown, of influence. Uh, She's giving voice to what many people at different times took Jesus to be offering a, a better way, moving up the ladder of social mobility and of religious renown. And you see that not just in her individual question and request that Jesus has to rebuff, but in the movement of the crowds. You read the gospel account of John and Jesus is feeding thousands miraculously and they are willingly coming to listen to him out in the middle of nowhere, as it were, and receiving this food and this provision. But as soon as he starts addressing the costly nature of following him, what happens but they start to flee? They have no time for his demands No time for hearing what he is after. They have simply come to receive bread and provision, to be gifted something by him that they thought they needed. And we see this even after his crucifixion and resurrection. Acts 1 tells the story of the ascension of Christ when he sort of exits stage left for a season. And just before that, he's huddled with his closest disciples. These are the folks who've gotten it who have been with him through thick and thin, who have been restored by him as he's in his risen body, offering them peace and comfort and confidence and hope. And what do they ask? But Lord, when you come back, is that gonna be the time that you restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, they still think that the main issue is political peace. They still think that his main task is to set the kingdom right in terms of who rules this section of Palestine, known as Israel. That it's all about God eventually pulling through on our political aspirations. And yes, he didn't do it right here and now, but he's going to leave, and a time later, he will come. And Lord, is that when you will do it? You can see there their desires are still for this political peace and order. And you know what? As I read those stories, I find that as I look around me and as I examine my own heart, especially in a season like this, in a time leading up to celebrating Christmas, in the time of Advent, all of those oppositions are present. You look around our world and you don't have to look far to see people who are overtly and loudly opposed to Jesus and all that he stands for. People who would denigrate and mock and blaspheme what is most central to Christ. Who would uh, trample upon the principles of the gospel and the idea that we live by God's grace. And we see near and far those who would treat that as being 
not just unappealing, but downright evil. But there's also more subtle opposition. And it's this that I think this passage leads us to examine this morning. Paul here is addressing a religious crowd in a religious city. He is not writing to a bunch of pagans, nor is he talking about how you do evangelism in areas where there aren't Christians around. When he's writing to the church in Corinth, he's addressing a congregation of people who have been baptized and named Christ as Lord, who are professing Christians. And if you've read widely in the two Corinthian epistles that we have, you know they are messed up. They are messed up in all sorts of ways. They don't get along with each other. They don't get along uh, with those who have different theological beliefs or moral expectations or different socioeconomic backgrounds. They have all sorts of divisions. And if you want to see what a worship war is, forget talking about guitars or organs or anything we fight about today in the church. These people are divided as can be, as you see in 1 Corinthians, where the rich are coming and getting drunk when they take communion and doing so in front of the poor who don't even have food and drink to bring to, to partake in the supper. I mean, it's, it's a wild scenario, but it's a religious scenario. And these are people who name the name of Christ, and these are people who have religious leaders who claim to be ministering Christ's gospel. And here, Paul begins by addressing a temptation. Notice where he begins. Having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. Apparently, some people are losing heart. And because they're losing heart... They're doing these other things. They're renounce, or excuse me, they're going about in disgraceful and underhanded ways that seem to involve cunning and especially tampering with God's word. They are manipulating God's word so as to get a certain result. They are tampering with what God's word commends and what it calls for so as to elicit a certain response. And I think that provokes some examination of, of what the problem is. Why is it that you would lose heart and why is it that you would be tempted as a leader to manipulate or tamper with God's word? And it's right there that we see the subtle form of opposition to Jesus that was present in the gospel accounts and I find present in my own heart from time to time. And I want to ask you to examine yourself before we look back at the passage and see God's response to this. There is overt opposition to Christ and his kingdom. There is blasphemous, direct, uh, adversarial sort of uh, opposition to Christ. And that's as old as the gospel accounts. But there's also an insidiously subtle approach that doesn't somehow mock Christ. It doesn't even marginalize Christ, but it commodifies Christ. And it's that idea of commodification or objectification that I think we need to examine this morning as we think about our lives in light of this passage. It's one thing to think Jesus is insignificant, that he's wrong, that he's bad, that he's evil. It's another thing to tamper with Jesus and to espouse the name of Jesus 
but to distort it and twist it so that it serves your own purposes. And I think we find that in all sorts of ways, in public and frankly, even in some of our most seemingly pious moments as persons. We see it in public, of course. I mean, we've just been through a year, an election cycle, and every time it's a reminder of how religious language gets used to work us over. And I don't doubt that there are sincere people, but every election cycle should remind you and prompt you that people are trying to use you. And they're trying to draw at your heartstrings by invoking the name of God or Christ, by somehow tying their programs and aspirations, their character, whatever it may be, left, right, or otherwise, somehow tying that to God's kingdom. We can see how what it means to follow God takes the form of following and pursuing and praying for and seeking out some other program, some other policy, some other desired end that is not explicitly drawn from God's word. That may not be bad. That may be good, may be helpful, but isn't somehow tied and tethered to the work and person of Jesus, to his gospel. And we see it not just in politicians and in broad cultural movements, but even in our most personal moments, our most pious moments. You know, I, I teach, and in the classroom, one of the things I've had to invoke in recent years, like a lot of folks in the world of higher ed, is that whereas 20 years ago, people were bringing computers into the classroom, in a lot of fields now, like my own, there's a movement now to get computers and technology out in lots of ways. And there's two reasons people can do that, and it's actually pretty telling. One is that they're so distracting, and students will be on there, and, and if they have a laptop open or a smartphone in front of them, they could be typing notes down, but they're just as frequently looking at real estate they might purchase, or texting with someone. They're distracting themselves. They're not participating in class. I have to tell students, that, that's not why I ban laptops and tablets from the classroom. If, if someone doesn't want to participate and would prefer to text, that's on them, and I won't lose sleep at night. The really dangerous moment is the student who thinks they're participating and is attempting to use the tablet or the, the laptop to take notes, to be involved, to somehow archive every thought put forth by the professor or by their classmates. And it's right there that technology actually tells us they're shooting themselves in their own foot. That taking such notes is actually the worst way to either analyze or remember anything that occurred. And that far better is to hold a pencil or pen and jot down the occasional thought, but actually be filtering and thinking and analyzing what is worthy of recounting. What is worthy of jotting down? What is a, a conversation worth having, a question worth raising? Being present in the moment actually enables better participation. You see, it's it's not really the person who is downright opposed to participating who's the problem. What's really sad is the person who thinks they're participating but by their use of technology is, is getting a lesser educational experience. It's the same thing, I think, in our opposition subtly to Christ. It's not when I forget Jesus it's not when I simply get caught up in other things and I refuse to pray or to read the Bible that I find I'm, I'm most frequently and most starkly opposed to him. It's rather when I pray and I read the Bible 
but I tamper with it and I twist it so that it's about what I want. So that it's about what I feel I need to get ahead and to make it. And you can do a a rather simple inventory. Think about the last time you devoted yourself to prayer. It, It may have been this morning, last night. It may have been earlier in the week. Think about the last time you sat there before you went to sleep at night or before a meal as you gathered with a friend or you took a few moments of solitude by yourself to pray to God, simply think about what you actually said. What was it that was worthy of recounting to God and what was it that was deserving of requests from God? It's a remarkable thing. We have access to God most high. We can talk to him. And as the psalmist said in Psalm 80, we can trust that God will come down and listen. So you can do a simple inventory. What do you care about? Just like your schedule and your bank account tell you where you invest your significance and where you desire, so your prayer life can speak of what do you treasure? What do you take before God? What gets a thank you God out of you? And what receives a plea, God, would you help me? And I'll confess, as I look at my inventory of prayers, the moments when I'm actually acting in a pious way, most often they have to do with getting children to behave better, keeping people healthy, helping work our way through the difficulties of the schedule, hoping to see uh, some sort of progress with various things at home or at work, tasks. And none of those are bad things. But Jesus doesn't have to exist for any of those things to exist. None of those are distinctly things tied to Jesus. Those are all things that I and my pagan neighbor both, I mean, who doesn't want to be healthy? Who doesn't want their kids to live in an appropriate way? Who doesn't want to uh, make progress and to see results at work, whatever that might be? Those are just basic intuitions. And it's so common that we simply take our normal desires and ask Jesus to answer them. But what Jesus offers is so much more. And what the gospel commends is that God goes so much further than simply answering our requests. You know, that's one of the most significant jobs of a teacher, an instructor, is taking a request or a question and helping someone refine it and reform it so that they realize what they're actually after, what they should be after. The most significant work of a teacher, a parent, a guide, a mentor, is not simply parroting answers to questions as they're posed, but helping to get underneath it. What you're really after, what's really bothering you, what's most significant here under the surface is something else. And helping people reframe things and, and redirect desires. And that's what we see here. We're tempted as Christians, churches, and ministry leaders to do what verses one and two say. We're tempted to tamper with, to modify, to change the message of God's word. We're tempted to do so because it seems to work, because it pulls at the heartstrings of what people want, of what any demographic survey would get you. 
what any marketing study would get you, that there are certain things all people desire, and Jesus comes and he is the answer for that. He will provide marriage or the happy marriage. He will provide some sort of financial peace. He will provide some sort of moral order. He will provide some sort of civic harmony. And all of those are good things. But none of those are distinctly Christian. None of those get at the center of what Christ offers us. And what we see here is that Paul says, over and against that kind of tampering and commodifying, we know we have what ministry we have. We have what calling we have. You have what mission you have by the mercy of God. And he goes deeper. He says, you know why you have the mission you have? It's not because you're more intelligent. It's not because you're more pious. In verse four and verse five, he will press more deeply and he'll say that this is a gift of God. God has illumined you. God has enlightened you. God has shown his light upon you in a certain way so that the same power that made the world has been put to work in remaking you. That's a remarkable statement that we see here in verse six, finally, that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring back to Genesis one, the God who was able to make from nothing everything that is true and good and beautiful, that same God has put that same kind of power to work in bringing you from darkness to light. And if he's done that to you already, and if he has that same power that was displayed cosmically in Genesis 1, and it's been displayed personally in your conversion, imagine what he can do as he goes before you and calls you, summoning you to mission. And as he sends you, not just with a task, but with a blessing, we can take heart, we can have good cheer, we need not fear, we need not tamper, we need not practice cunning because the same God who created and recreated is there to bless what we pursue. I'm reminded of a, a movie that you may have seen in one of two forms, but both of them, different though they are aesthetically, get at the same spiritual relational dynamic. Many of you will know the story of Willy Wonka recounted in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And nothing displays the significance of objectifying people like watching those kids in Willy Wonka. You, you perhaps, I trust, know the story whether you've read the book or you've seen the old Gene Wilder version or you've seen the more recent version with Johnny Depp. They are all psychedelic. They are all strange, but they all have their own flavor. But the narrative is the same, isn't it? That there is this reclusive, a uh, brilliant savant of a chocolate maker named Willy Wonka. And he has built this empire, but he's walled himself in, and there's something of a mystery to that. And finally, after keeping people out of his factory for ages, it seems, he has this competition where there are these golden tickets, and the children who get them get to come in for a day, and they get to see the factory. And at the end of the day, someone's going to be selected for something. And it's it's mysterious because Willy Wonka is strange. Gene Wilder was strange. Johnny Depp is strange. Willy Wonka is strange. And as the day goes on, he's leading this tour through the many rooms of this remarkable factory. And they're going uh, to see how various candies are made. 
And it is like watching an episode of Survivor. Kids are dropping left and right as they go into different rooms and they see different inventions. And uh, the different kids get so entranced by different things that Willy Wonka has created and invented. It, it could be a particular kind of candy uh, that looks a certain way, but actually tastes like something remarkably different. It, it could be technology that allows you to uh, have a camera zap you from here and place you over there. But one by one, kids are insisting on doing certain things, eating certain things, participating in, in certain practices there. Willie warns them, they go on, they, they must have this, they must eat this, they must do this. And one by one, they drop like flies and they have to be wheeled off. And only one person makes it to the end. Charlie gets the book named after him. And Charlie makes it to the end not because he's less interested in the rooms or the inventions. But Charlie alone, among all the kids, is able to see past the invention to the inventor. Charlie realizes that the Willy Wonka who made a chocolate bar or a remarkable kind of television technology can make so much more and show you so much more. And so he patiently waits and trusts and obeys directions prompted by Willie so that he can eventually see what more would come. He is the only one who is not focused upon a simple work or invention. And that's the undoing of all the other children. And that's why at the end of the story, Charlie is the winner. And he's the one offered the factory. Because he understands that the inventor surpasses the invention. And that's something we see remarkable in this passage and in the gospel story. Jesus does so much. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He feeds the hungry. He teaches the ignorant. He welcomes the outcast. In so many ways, he meets the tangible needs of individuals and communities. But Jesus and his glory surpass any of those particular gifts. The giver is greater than the gift. One of the most profound blessings of the gospel is that by providing for things we know we need, God redirects our desires to something that exceeds what we know that we need. That he prompts us to consider a deeper question, a deeper desire. You know, for many... Christianity and the gospel are opposed to desire and longing. That's a, a very common understanding that, that Christians are somehow misanthropic. We're, we're not uh, going to further the cause of humanity. We're not going to lead to happiness. It's an ancient charge and it's a contemporary perception, isn't it? That we crash the life of the party as it were. We douse it. But C.S. Lewis decades ago raised what I think is an appropriate reminder here in his remarkable essay on the weight of glory, that very word that appears here. Listen to Lewis. He says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good 
and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing. I submit this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what's meant by a day at the beach We are far too easily pleased. Think back to that inventory of your prayers. If you're anything like me, they are so half-hearted. God, would you give me health tomorrow? God, would you help me to do well at whatever task lies ahead of me this week? Not that those are bad, not that those are insignificant, not that Christ doesn't commend us to take every concern to God, but Christ, when he does school us in how to pray, he says, before you pray about that daily bread, you first pray that God's name would be hallowed, that God's kingdom would come, that God's will would be done. And if I'm honest, days tend to go by where I am half-hearted such that I don't ask God, would, would you make your name to be greater in my heart that I would cherish you above all else? God, would you make your renown and your work known and accomplished in a significant, powerful way this day and in this place? God, would you sanctify my mind that I might think more clearly your thoughts as revealed in your word? God, would you set apart my heart that I wouldn't Uh, be divided and that I wouldn't be so distracted by the lesser goods of this world. God, would you take my will and refashion it that I might more willingly and happily defer to your calling, that I would realize as Paul prays here and commends to us here that we're to take up the idea of Christ as Lord ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. I'm half-hearted and I desire too little, not too much. And one of the greater gifts of the gospel is the fact that God not only meets our daily earthly needs, but he prompts us to a deeper, more powerful gift, an eternal heavenly gift that exceeds the joys and satisfactions of this moment or this day. And that the same power that brought the world into being, the same might that recreated my heart and soul is busy and committed as we go about the task together of proclaiming God's name and commending God's gospel and seeking to love others and to witness before others to the life-giving work of the gospel, that they might too cherish that, that they might too uh, know the God whom we have by his grace come to know. You see, as we look at the hope of Christmas, the hope of the gospel, the hope that Jesus gives, we see that it is entangled with Jesus himself. And that's why objectification is such a helpful word to think about our ongoing temptation. We know what it means to objectify someone. 
in recent years, human trafficking in its various forms has thankfully risen again to a position of public prominence and, and, and civic debate because it's an ongoing issue and we have words to describe what goes on when someone is trafficked. We are objectifying someone. We are treating their body or their work as more significant than their person. And we can, of course, in lots of lesser ways, describe how you can treat someone in a perhaps flippant way, in an objectifying way, an inappropriate way. We realize that this can happen in really brazen and excessive uh, and crass forms where we treat people as valuable for their money, uh, for sex, for influence. But it, it can also happen in all sorts of more subtle uh, less flippant forms, can't it? And it often happens in even our most pious moments before God that we think that the coming of Christ's kingdom is about the baptizing of my own desires and the fulfilling of my own longings when in fact Christ's kingdom starts with Christ reforming my desires and redirecting my heart that I might not simply look to the blessing of Canaan but to the presence of God you know, I'm reminded of, of Psalm 95, a word given to Israel when they've left Egypt and they've entered the promised land. And Psalm 95 recounts that rest still awaits. And, and the book of Hebrews reflects on this. It points out that they already had political freedom. They already had the, the land flowing with milk and honey. They already had security militarily from their foes, they had resources, they had barns and cisterns, they have uh, stored up for a bad season. You might say they have a good 401k and a golden parachute awaiting them. All of that seems to be well, but, but Psalm 95 says that rest still awaits because God's ultimate provision is only imaged or displayed cryptically and in such small scale in those earthly blessings. The greater blessing, of course, is God's very presence. And that's what we see with the coming of Christ. That the God who promises to stitch up those who are torn, the God who promises to give sight to the blind, that the God who promises to forgive our sins that they might be remembered no more, that he himself is greater than a cleansed conscience. He himself is greater than relationships restored. He himself is greater than a world that aches with groanings of environmental strife being brought to peace again. That the giver exceeds the various gifts. Think about the wonderful things you see displayed in the story of the Bible. We've been running back through this four-act story that we see across the biblical text, that God acts in creation, making everything with his might and power and out of his love and desire to be with us. And we see that Christ is a stamp of approval, that God is still committed to that task. And we see that creation is distorted and depraved, and our sin has permeated every nook and cranny of life, so that the environmental struggles, the relational difficulties, the physical ailments, the spiritual uh, blackout, all of the various facets of our struggle and strife are a result of our sin before God. 
And third, we saw last week as Damien led us into the text of Colossians that Christ comes and he comes to fulfill the promise made so long ago that though sin had separated us from God and sent everything awry, God is dealing with it. God is responding and providing what we call reconciliation, the mending of the torn fabric of our lives and of this world. But fourth and finally, as we look at the closure of the story, as we look at what we might call the the finale, as we consider that Advent finale of, of the final word of our hope and our longing that God might arrive or return yet again, we see that it exceeds simply asking for sin to be dealt with and relationships restored. That as you read the end of your Bible, you see the ultimate gift is not newness. The ultimate gift is God's nearness. That at the end of the day, our ultimate longing is a longing that our hearts have to be trained unto and reformed for. That ultimately, we are made to find our happiness in God. And that one of the most traumatizing effects of our sin, one of the most debilitating results of the fall is misplaced sense of need. I, I've spent for a variety of reasons over the last couple of years a lot of time with medical professionals. And uh, I, I'm one who deals with anxiety by talking and trying to learn and it's a way, whether I'm, I'm waiting for a lab test or waiting for an appointment, to get through it and to not think about what might go bad. So I start asking questions about their work and about what they're doing. And most of them are terribly polite and willing to chat. And, and, and one of the things that I've observed is that one of the biggest problems that medical professionals struggle with in trying to care for people is that people come in with the blessing of WebMD. And some of you can probably uh, confess that you, like me, have done this from time to time, but you have done that Google search. Or you've talked to someone who has an anecdotal experience that helps really illumine the situation. And uh, we come with our own suspicions. And of course, I mean, medicines are on commercials now. So of course, this is magnified. That couple walking along the lakeside, they're hand in hand and happy. The doc should put me on that drug right? Um, For lots of reasons, we come in thinking our need is X, Y, or Z. And oftentimes, the difficulty for the doctor is not getting us to think that we're sick, but redirecting the issue, getting at something that's deeper, that's, that's underlying, realizing that The big issue isn't simply dealing with this symptom, but trying to to get down underneath to some condition that actually if you treated the symptom, you'd be fooled into thinking you were doing better. And the gospel is that way. The gospel is that way. In that the gospel not only commends the promise that God provides every good, every good gift comes down from the Father of lights, and that God meets our every need in and through Jesus's love and blessing, but that God points us back to what the ultimate blessing is. This word that we find repeatedly here, glory. That gravity, that weightiness, that significance we're made for, that apart from which we find no happiness. And so as we go about the Christmas season and we walk these last few days before celebrating Christ's coming, I would ask you to reflect on two things. Reflect on 
those desires that you find being expressed in your praises and in your prayer requests and ask, Lord, would you lead me to deeper love, deeper desire, not for half-hearted goods, but ultimately for a good that can only be found in you. For Augustine said, God's made us to find our rest in him, and apart from that, we will always be restless. And secondly, as you take that inventory and try and lead yourself deeper into prayer for greater desires, that you would receive God and nothing less, take cheer. Take cheer. Because the same God who created the world from nothing and brought Jesus out of the grave is a God who we read here is committed to making sure that the message of Jesus reaches its end and he has not left us. It may seem in this intermittent season where he has exited the stage and we await his return, it may seem that he's abandoned us and we're left carrying the baton on our own. But we're told at the end of his words to the disciples in Matthew 28 that he sends them on a mission As they go, they make disciples, they baptize, and they teach. But he sends them with a blessing. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he's with us with that creative power and that resurrecting power, the same kind of power that will have no difficulty in taking my weak and feeble and misdirected desires and pointing them upward and onward to God and the glory that he has for me. Let's pray and ask that God would remind us of that grace. God, we confess that so often we forget you. And just as often as we think of you, we seek to use you. And we, we desire other things and, and we treat you like a provider, an instrument, and not an end or a goal. And yet we see from your word that you promise to sanctify us and set us apart. And so we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you don't simply get the gospel started, but you see it through to its very end. And so we pray now that your word would grant hope to our hearts, that it would grant resolve to our wills, and that it would grant light to our path, that we might be led to lead lives that befit your kingdom and that display faith, ever-increasing faith in your Son, our Savior, even Jesus. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.